So what is your state of readiness? What is your state of readiness? Normally when we think about a question like that, we would think that that would apply to someone in the military, whether they be a private or a general. What is your state of readiness? Maybe we think larger. We think of the whole military of a nation. And we ask, what is the state of readiness for our military? Or maybe you take it even broader and you think about us as a nation. What is our state of readiness as a nation? Are we able to defend our people from whatever threat may be coming? That's oftentimes how we think of readiness. Here in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul is addressing our readiness not only to defend and honor God's name, but also to promote his peace and to overcome evil with his goodness. Let's look at God's word. Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is your word. Speak through me as your servant, Lord. I ask and apply your teaching to your servants, to your children this day. I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Readiness is more than just being able to defend. But that is a part of it. That is definitely a part of it. I love dogs. And I got this dog story from Andrew Miller, which was about a Georgia sheepdog named Casper. Uh, His daily job, obviously, was to watch over the sheep. He was a big old white sheepdog. Well, one night, a group of hungry coyotes came rushing in and attacked the sheep. What these coyotes probably didn't realize is that one of those creatures that looked like a sheep, he was white like they were, he had teeth like they did, and he also had the will to fight. Casper took on the whole group of coyotes, and by the end of the night, after about a half hour of fighting them off, he had put away eight of them, which lets you know how big that group of coyotes was. He had killed eight of them and scared the rest away. Casper was beaten up, wounded, uh, not in good shape. But he had accomplished his mission. He had defended his sheep. His owner, John, was concerned about Casper because after this war that took place, he went off for a few days and he was fearful that his dog had gone off to die. But two days later, a few days later, he came back. You could see the wounds that the coyotes had afflicted on him. They had bitten a piece of his tail off, and he had other, other wounds that showed the battle, the, the, the conflict and the severity of the battle. 
And when he came to his master, he just looked at him like, okay, I did my work for you now. What are you going to do for me? And sure enough, uh, his master and, and some uh, well-wishers who, who learned about the story uh, raised some money and, and was able to get him to an animal hospital where he was repaired and restored. So uh, we are thankful about that. So we go back again to the issue of readiness. In this case, you see a dog who's ready uh, and, and he, he's willing to take on whatever comes, even at the cost of his life, in order to defend those whom he's supposed to protect. But readiness is not just defense. It's also being ready to encourage and renew those who are weary from the battles they face in life. When you think about the dog coming home, there had to be a readiness of his master who is willing to repair the damage that has been done to him. I know some of you are seeing a little bit of this sounds like Christ and, and in the grave and stuff like that. I don't want to go down that path. But the readiness aspect should be there in your presence that when, when people go through battles in life, on fighting the battle for Christ Jesus, that they need to be restored and we need to be ready for those folks who, are, who, are, who come to us or those who are in the mission field or those who are in places where they are in, in uh, being persecuted, we need to be ready to support them and to help them. And even readiness is a matter of mending those who are broken in this world. There are so many people in this world who don't know Christ Jesus. They don't know about Jesus Christ. All they know is the brokenness of their own situation. Whether they've been abused or violated or whatever has taken place. They know, they know the corruption of evil. They know the power of evil and its effects on them. How evil brings forth destruction and has destroyed their life. That's what they know. They don't know the joy of peace. They don't know the joy of life. The fellowship of the Spirit that we enjoy. And they are in need. Are we ready to help them? Readiness also means that you are ready to act the right way for the right reasons. It is the basis for virtue. There are, the, there are many who are ready to act the wrong way for the wrong reasons because that is our sinful estate. That is how we naturally are in our sinful estate. But to be ready to act the right way for the right reasons means that you are seeking first and foremost God's righteousness over and above your own. And you're seeking to advance His kingdom in this world. As we've been going through Sunday school lessons, I'm, I'm just overcome with, with how the first pilgrims and the Puritans sought to promote the righteousness of Christ Jesus and advance his kingdom and the benefits and blessings that this, this nation knew as a result of that and how we've gotten away. And it asks and begs the question of us, are we ready? Do we have a readiness as God's people? to honor His name, to, to promote His peace, and to overcome evil with His goodness. Do we have a readiness? 
So regarding a defense, what is your state of readiness in honoring God's name? Yes, we start with honoring God's name here. You might be looking at the text and asking yourself, where does the Apostle Paul address honoring God's name? All of chapter 12 is about honoring God's name. We begin with verse 1. Paul says, in view of God's mercy to offer our bodies, we should offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship, honoring God. Why did Jesus come into this world? He did so to honor his heavenly Father, to honor his name, to show forth who his heavenly Father truly was in a world that had perverted, had a perverted understanding of God. John 3.16 is a verse that we love so much. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loves you and I that he gave his only begotten Son. His Son came into this world to do what? to honor his Father in heaven, and in so doing to save us, because that's the purpose for which he was sent, out of love, to save us, so that we would not be condemned, but that we would be restored, that we would be saved and restored to God. So when we look at this issue, Jesus came into this world to honor the name and will of his heavenly Father by offering his holy life as a sacrifice for our sins so that all who believe on him will be saved. God is about saving life, not destroying it. The devil, on the other hand, is about destroying life. That is the nature of evil, to to destroy physically, psychologically, and spiritually. But the goodness of Christ Jesus overcame the power of evil. How did he do that? By doing what is right in the eyes of everybody, not only here on earth, but also in heaven. What could Satan the accuser do once Jesus cried out, It is finished on the cross? After he had lived a righteous and holy life and then offered as a a sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin for all who believe on him, what, what can Satan say to that? I mean, his, his name means accuser. He is the prosecutor. What can he say to that? He can't say anything. There can only be silence from him when it comes to, the, to Christ Jesus and those who are in Christ Jesus. He can say nothing. Hence, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 17 of Romans 12, Do not repay evil for evil. Do not use Satan's tactics to engage actions that are evil. You know, at one point, Jesus says, if Satan is divided against Satan, then he will not stand. That's not how Satan works. The way Satan works in your life and my life is he works into that sinful heart of ours and pulls out these these actions or these strategies that we think will work for us because maybe they've worked in, in, in the past you know, when we were acting sinfully, whether it's through intimidation or whatever we use, he, he knows how to pull those, those, out, those tactics out of that bag and put them in front of us and say, this is how you win. 
And do you win? I'll ask you a simple question. Who wins when the goal is to shout louder than the other person? Who wins? Nobody. Because <laughs> it gets to the point where you can't even hear the other person because both of you are shouting so loud, right? That's a simple tactic. But it proves the point. So you don't overcome evil with evil. Uh, and, and, and it's the issue of payback. It, it says the word is repay here, but it's payback. And it, it would understand this as our effort to avenge the evil someone has done to us. But does any of our vengeance honor God's name? The issue, the issue Paul is addressing here is the question of how Christians respond to the motives and actions of our non-Christian world. Are we being careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody, including God? This is not a call to legalism here. This is a matter of showing forth the power of Christ at work in us, the power and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Pastor Don Piper cites this example, and it's more extreme, but it makes the case. It makes the point. He says, in January 1999, Graham's Staines and his two sons, Philip, who was 10 years old, and Timothy, who was 6 years old, were mobbed by radical Hindus in India. They were trapped inside their vehicle and burned alive. The three charred bodies were recovered, clinging to each other. Graham Staines had spent 34 years serving the people of India, in the name of Jesus. He was the director of the leprosy mission in Barapada, Orissa. He left behind his, his widow Gladys and his daughter Esther. Uh, his widow Gladys's response was in every paper in India to the glory of Christ. She said, A few days after the martyrdom of her husband and sons, I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter, Neither am I angry, but I have one great desire, that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. That is overcoming evil with God's goodness. Everyone... Uh, Piper continues, everyone thought she would move back to Australia. No, she said God had called them to India and she would not leave. She said, my husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve those in need. Then perhaps most remarkable of all is, and he tells the teenagers to listen up, his daughter... Esther was asked how she felt about the murder of her dad. And the 13-year-old said, I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him, to honor his name in this way. To be a living sacrifice for God. 
In the Lord's Prayer, how does Jesus begin? What's of first and most importance? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed is your name. Hallowed is your name. Hallowed means to set apart or exalt as holy. And that's followed by then, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Consider the first three commands of the moral law. You just read them a little bit ago. The first is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second is, you shall not make an idol out of anything in all of creation. No other gods, no idols. And then the third command, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. If you're placing other idols or other gods in front of God, what are you doing? You're trying to make his name futile, worthless. Interestingly, in that third command, the word for take, as in taking the Lord's name in vain, is the word nasa. Sound familiar? Nasa. In Hebrew, it means to lift high, to carry, to take up or bear up, referring to the physical movement of raising something up or lifting it up or carrying it up. To really understand the meaning of this, of when God says, you shall not take my name in vain, you have to look at how mankind treated his son, Jesus Christ, who is the very representation of God the Father. He sent his son into this world to save us, and how did we treat him? Instead of listening to him, instead of heeding his counsel, instead of following him, we crucified him. And what do you do when you crucify someone? You take them and you nail them to a cross and you lift them up, raise them up for everyone to see. And you show them the futility of who this person is. It's, it's looking at God and saying, you are vain, you are worthless. Your name means nothing. You call yourself the Messiah. You call yourself the Christ. You are none of that. And your death is going to prove that. Even Pilate understood. The, the Roman governor of the province understood that Jesus had done nothing to deserve this kind of death. And in order to try and get himself out of the bind because the Jews were were clamoring for Jesus' crucifixion, that he would put him to death. Biden put up two individuals. One was a notorious criminal named Barabbas, and the other one obviously was the Son of God, Jesus. And he gave them a choice, expecting that people would come to their senses and that they would call out, no, no, we want Jesus, not Barabbas. Barabbas is a scoundrel. We don't want him. We want Jesus. Set him free. But instead they said, give us Barabbas. And shocked, Pilate says, why? And, and they say, well, what would you have me do with Jesus? And they shout out, crucify him. And, and Pilate is kind of shocked. He says, why? What's, what wrong has he done deserving this death? And they didn't answer. They just shouted out all the louder, crucify him. Do you see what's going on here? 
They're trying to nullify God, trying to make His name worthless. Instead of defending His name, instead of revering His name, which is what they were called to do as a people of God. You can see the war between man and God vividly in Matthew 27. But you know what, res- what comes from that. Jesus did die on the cross, but he was also raised from the dead. And his resurrection proves that he had triumphed over evil. He had overcome evil with his goodness, which is God's goodness. Jesus made peace between us and God through living a perfect life paying for the sins of all who trust in him through uh, his death on the cross, with his resurrection guaranteeing our justification before God. God accepted Jesus' sacrifice as payment for our sin, making us righteous in his sight so that we have peace with him. So what then is your state of readiness in promoting God's peace? This is verses 18 through 20. Look, at, look there for a moment. Verses 18 through 20 reveal how we may promote God's peace in this world. Paul writes, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink, something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That is an imagery of searing the conscience, of maybe waking someone out of their delusional stupor where they are held captive by sin. You know, the spirit working in their heart to open their eyes, to open the window of their soul so that they can actually see and repent. That's what he's talking about there. So you're, you, as God's servant, are the driver of peace. Those in the world who are non-Christians, who are non-believers, they're not going to promote the peace of Christ. You, as God's children, promote the peace of Christ. You're the driver who puts that forth. In our natural estate, we are at war with God and to various degrees with one another. It is God who promotes peace through his mercy. The Apostle Paul is basically presenting Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. If you're a fast page turner, you can turn there. But you know this is the teaching of the Lord in the Beatitudes. After the Beatitudes, he says in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In other words, you should be justified in hating your enemy, right? But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the, un- and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? When Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, he's saying to you and I, you need to show mercy to those around you. That's what this Indian family, who were missionaries in India, 
were doing was showing mercy to those who hated them, who were their enemies, who despised them. And think about how God will use that ministry, that demonstration of mercy in the lives of India, people in India. Promoting and glorifying and honoring God's name, promoting his peace instead of wanting to get vengeance and, and, and retaliate in war. As a Christian, you are called to be a peacemaker through your obligation to honor Christ Jesus and then your aim to promote his peace. We are also not naive in thinking that promoting peace and harmony is always possible. We know that the truth divides as well as unites. And when it divides, there is dissonance. That division means that someone will stand opposed to us no matter how merciful or loving or kind you are to them, and that's just part of the process. We are called, as far as it depends on us, to show mercy to those around us. This all sounds good, you say, but you have to have a willing heart to do this, don't we? We have to have a willing heart. We, otherwise, it's just words, right? It's just something in our minds. Is there a readiness, a willingness to do this as God's people. How do you overcome evil? There's only one way, and that's through God's power. Turn in your Bibles to Titus 3, verses 1 through 8. Remember that Titus was a slave when you hear these words. Titus 3, 1 through 8. These are also the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is what? What? Whatever is good. So, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show the true humility toward all men. Just to note here that this word good does not refer to uh, secular humanism's idea of goodness. It refers to God's goodness, what God determines to be good. Verse 3, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. What turned our lives around? What transformed our hearts? What changed our perspective? Verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, because there was anything meritorious in us, but because of His mercy. We're back at the word mercy, aren't we? He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. See, He's talking to me as a pastor, as one who's preaching. I want you to stress these things. I want you to, to repeat this over and over. Make sure your people understand this. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful, 
There's that word careful again, isn't there? To devote themselves to doing what is what? He ends as he began. Be careful to devote yourselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. He's not just talking about in the church. He's talking about in the whole world. Our willingness and thus our readiness to overcome evil must be through God's goodness. And it should always be driven by an understanding of what Jesus has done for us, which is represented right here in the Lord's Supper. This is the mercy and grace of God. Apart from the blood and body of Christ, which was given for you, you have no standing. I have no standing in the presence of God. But because of what he did for us, not only do I have standing, I can come boldly with anything. And God will hear me because of the blood of Christ that atones for me. I'd ask the elders to come forward at this time as we prepare